you have your Bibles, open them up to Hebrews chapter 7. Hey, I would like for you guys to do a little bit of um, Bible judo with me today. I have like seven, nine scripture references um, in my sermon today. And so some of them are important that you kind of follow along with me if you kind of bounce around with me a little bit. So let's start in First uh, Peter, or hold a finger in Hebrews chapter 7, and turn to First Peter chapter 2. We're going to begin there with a little intro to the message today. Now, I want to warn you, actually, let me, I, I, two, two things I forgot to announce. On the, on the overflow... The youth room is set up with chairs, and there's a TV where you can hear and see the sermon in there. That, that room kind of doubles as a mother's room as well. So, um, you know, it's kind of been awkward because if, if a mom, a nursing mom wants to use it and some family goes in, but right now it is what it is, I guess first come, first serve. We don't have the greatest solution, but we do want to have a place that if you come in late and you don't have a seat and you don't want to sit, you can sit in the coffee shop or you can go in the youth room and you can watch me on the screen, you can hear it, you can, it's kind of like a little overflow room there, and also it, it, it can be for, for moms who need a, a cry room to be able to use that. Also moms, that one's nice because you can hear and see the sermon, but if there is somebody in there and Moms, you need a place to go. You can go behind the women's restroom and the conference room as well. It'll be pretty private back there. No men should be going back there during um, services. Hey, this was kind of cool, and I wanted to share this with you guys. I got a letter today from a Calvary Chapel in Colorado. It was in the, it was in the mail this week, and it was just random. It had my name on it. And I opened up the letter, and it says, Dear Chris, and I don't know these people personally. They're part of our Calvary family. They're in our region. You know, I go to the pastor's conferences, and I, and I meet these guys, but this particular Calvary pastor, I don't remember him by name, but I'm sure I've met him before, but it says, Dear Chris and all the saints that gather at Tooele Springs Calvary Chapel, this is just a note to let you know that our congregation is praying for you this week. May the Lord hold you all so very close to his heart and speak specific words of great grace and encouragement as you stand in the gap living out your high and holy calling in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and in love which are in Christ Jesus. The good thing which was committed to you keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Listen to Hold Fast on social media by Jim and Jan Zatrosky. In Christ's love always, Pastor Jim Zatrosky and all the prayer warriors at Christ the King Fellowship, Calvary Chapel in Colorado, Kingsburg, Colorado. So you have a church praying for you this week. Amen. All right, everybody do this. Reach over over your left shoulder, grab your seatbelt, strap it on. We're going to go for a ride. Um, I want you guys to try to keep up today, um, try not to bore you to death, I'm going to try to keep this thing moving. Um, chapter 7 introduces in much detail a character in the Bible by the name of Melchizedek. And I think it's very important that we understand biblically exactly who Melchizedek is and, and what his role was and who he was and how he applies. Now, there's only four verses in the entire Old Testament that even mention or talk about Melchizedek. He shows up in Genesis chapter 14, and he shows up to Abraham, and Abraham pays tithes to him, and he blesses Abraham. Three verses recorded about this mysterious guy. And then the psalm writer in Psalm 110, out of the blue, David is writing the psalm. He says that I've called you to be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. One verse in the psalms. And that's the entirety of what we know about this priest named Melchizedek in the Old Testament. And then we get to the New Testament and it's crickets all the way through until you come to Hebrews and all of a sudden... 
the writer of Hebrews has so much chapters, plural, about Melchizedek. We talked about him in chapter, he's mentioned in chapter 5 in 6, and now the whole chapter 7 is about him. He's going to be mentioned again. And so we're, we're going to finally get this four-verse mysterious character out of the Old Testament who showed up to Abraham, and Abraham paid tithes to him. And we're going to learn about him because the writer of Hebrews wants us to know how important this guy is. And then we're going to try to answer the question today, who was, who is this mysterious character Melchizedek? And we'll read to you his resume and, 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 and try to figure out who he is and why he's important and, and why he implies, applies here. And then also to keep it all in context, let's not forget what we're studying. We're studying the book of Hebrews, and the book of Hebrews is written to first century Hebrews to tell them not to be Jews anymore. No, actually, to not follow Judaism. And again, this is something I explain often, and so I, I, I just have to forgive me because I feel like you guys just get tired of hearing this over and over again. But I need to say it so we keep it in context, is that there was a, a group of people who grew up before Jesus died on the cross and rose again, and, and they grew up under the, the law of Moses, and they knew it, and they followed it, and it was by the will of God, and God was pleased with them, and there came a time where the law wasn't bad, or it wasn't like, it's rotten, I got to get rid of it. The law served a purpose, and it was intended to be completed. Jesus never, like, did away with the law and that it was bad. Jesus just put a period at the end of the sentence and started the next sentence, which was grace. And for you and I, we've only lived under faith and grace and never under a legalistic system of Judaism. So, but, but for these folks in Paul's day, he's transitioning them. So, and many of them, and with many religions, many religions around the world, and, and in some you know, extreme cases in Islam, they murder their children if they leave the faith. And I've heard of, of real-life stories of this happening in our lifetime, in this day and age, where a daughter was murdered by her father because she came home and told him that she wasn't um, a Muslim anymore. And, and, and it's true of, of, of lots of faiths and lots of religions, maybe not to the point of murder, but when you, when you grow up in a certain um, um, faith group and you, as an adult you leave that, you get ostracized, you get shunned, you get kicked out, you get looked down upon. And, and so for these folks, they're facing this. They're saying, I'm staking my family, my community, my life on what you're telling me. And, and, and if I follow this Jesus, I stand to lose everything. And, and so Paul, through the entire book of Hebrews, is demonstrating very articulately. I said Paul. You guys know I believe Paul wrote it, but you'll have grace, right? We don't know who wrote Hebrews. But the writer of Hebrews is going through case by case. And the whole, the whole narrative of Hebrews is showing why Jesus is better superior and greater than all everything that, uh, that, that has to do with the law of Moses, the Old Testament before the law. And we've gone through chapter by chapter. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Abraham. He's better than the priests. He's better than the prophets. And then here we're going to see that he's, he's better than the high priest. And, and he's his own priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now Paul started in Hebrews in chapter 5 telling this group of Hebrews and telling you and I something amazing that Jesus is our great high priest. Now again, for the Hebrew writers, you and I, we, we can receive that. Do you realize the Bible says there is only one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus? 
So if you've been involved in any kind of religious system where the religious hierarchy puts a person between you and your access to God, I want to tell you that's not the will of God for your life and it's unbiblical. Don't ever let anybody be your priest except for Jesus himself because Jesus is your great high priest. And, and, and how awesome is that? You know what happens? And it's kind of, it's kind of like in joking and jesting a little bit, but Paul's going to make a point that we, we put this faith in a priest and then that priest dies. What do you do? Now he's dead. You got this, this priest and he dies. And it's like Jesus never dies. He's a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And you have access to the God of heaven. But for power and control, men for, for centuries, thousands of years, have wanted to put themselves between you and God. Do you realize in, in the Gospels, it's only recorded two times where Jesus is mad? And both times, the only recorded time in Scripture where Jesus is angry, both times he's angry for the same thing. The only time we ever see Jesus get angry is when men are stopping other men from gaining access to God. And they're in the temple and people are coming to worship. People are traveling from all over the world. Some of them probably spent everything they had to make this trip to Jerusalem at Passover to worship God. And they raise this lamb and they come and they present the lamb for sacrifice. And the priest says, oh no, I can't receive this lamb. It's not worthy. It's got this little blemish right here. Oh, but not to worry. We have these lambs pre-approved by the priest. And you can offer one of these for sacrifice. The problem is they just cost 40 times more than what a sheep should cost. And they were getting rich and the people were leaving broken and upset. And, and they, were, they were turning his house into a den of thieves. And Jesus took a whip. Oh, little meek and mild Jesus. No. He was a man's man and he took a whip and he whipped them. And he kicked them out and he was angry when they were stopping people. When Jesus is talking and he writes the letter to the seven churches in Revelation... The things that he is upset about. He says, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans to the church. And the deeds of the Nicolaitans. The word Nico is where we get our English word Nike. Anybody got Nikes on? The word Nike comes from the Greek word of the Greek god of victory. It means victory. And, and, and the laity or the average people. And so Jesus said, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans which they lorded over the people. And they keep people from having direct access to God. And Jesus said, these things I hate. And Jesus was angry when he was in the flesh and when he walked on the earth. And here Paul is making this case. And it's such a blessing, right? Like how amazing is it that not only, you know, do you have a, a high priest that, that can sympathize with all of your needs and wants, but who's accessible 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Your therapist ain't available that much. <laughs> you know, you get them when you get them. But Jesus is available, and, and, and he's perfect, and he wants you to come to him. And so don't ever, ever let any system, any person keep you or tell you that you need to go through them to access God. Amen? We did, uh, are you guys in Peter? I asked you to hold a, 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 a finger in Hebrews and turn to, to 1 Peter. Listen, I want to put this to bed, to rest right now. I did a baptism here about four years ago, and this um, salesman was selling ads in the Yellow Pages, and he, and he talked me into buying an ad for the church in the Yellow Pages, and I was like, nobody reads the Yellow Pages anymore, and he said, well, contraire, and he gives me his little spiel, and, 
Anyways, I said, okay, I'll buy an ad. It was like 325 bucks. We got a little quarter page ad in the yellow pages for the church. And when people look for churches in the yellow pages, if they did, they would find us. And so he said, well, I'm going to be in town and I'm, I'm coming on Sunday. So why don't you come to church service? And we'll meet and, and we'll, um, you know, I'll give you the check and we'll, we'll get the ad and we'll get it done. He said, okay. So he shows up to service with his girlfriend and it happened to be baptism Sunday. So, um, so I did the service. And then we did baptisms afterwards, and baptisms took about an hour, and they sat there, both of them, through all of it, just waiting to get to talk to me at the end. And then it was all over. The people started to thin out, and I, and I, and I finally got a chance to sit down with the guy, the salesman, and his girlfriend. She looks at me with this face, like that Nordstrom's lady that was asking me about the drums one day. Are those your drums? I said, no, those are Josh's drums. Don't, don't. <laughs> I said, well, you don't have drums in your church? You, you must not have read Psalm 150, man. You guys are doing it all wrong. But anyways, another story. So she looks at me and she says, what gives you the right to baptize people? What gives you the authority to do baptisms? Who do you think you are to be able to do baptisms? Now, I'm assuming that from her background, her history, her, her uh, religious beliefs, that there needed to be some kind of authority given in order to be able to be considered worthy enough to baptize other people. And, and the question was so easily solved. So I just said to her, I said, listen, let me, let me show you something in the Bible. And so I take her to 1 Peter chapter 2. And I read her verse number 5, beginning with verse 5. It says, you also are as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up a spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so here it says that you're a holy priesthood. And you say, hold on, pastor. Read verse 5 carefully. It doesn't say you're a holy priesthood. It says you are being built up into a holy priesthood. You are being um, sanctified, equipped, discipled. And, and, and I said, yeah, that's true, but it's, it's a lead up. Now, now go down to verse number 9, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, and it says, But you are, everybody say are, are. a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Look at your neighbor and say, shoot, I didn't know you were a royal priest. <laughs> Listen, you all have been given a call of God that God sees you as a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a special people, set apart. What gives me the right to do baptisms? I'm a child of the Most High God. I'm a son of the King. And, and He's called me into the ministry and into the service, and every one of us, and not just because I'm a pastor. Your friend wants you to baptize him? Go baptize him in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Father, and the Son who is Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Your friend wants you to pray to receive Jesus to get saved. Pray over them to get saved. Pray over them to receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You are called and anointed by God as a royal priesthood. And there is nobody in between me and God, in between you and God. Now, am I making this up or does Peter not say here that, that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You have spiritual authority. Amen? Okay. 
So now when someone says, who gives you the right to baptize? You say, let me tell you, sister, Jesus does. <laughs> now you better go somewhere with that. Before I get upset, I start baptizing you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. I wouldn't have held her under that long. All right, number one, Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, in chapter 5, and you guys know this, you know this, this is a review. In chapter 5, when Peter, or when the writer here, Paul says to the Hebrews that Jesus is your great high priest, they would all raise their hands because they would have two appeals. Okay, what are their two appeals with Jesus not being qualified to be a high priest? Two problems. Number one, Jesus is a king. He's the king of Jerusalem. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You can't be a king and a priest. What's the other problem? He's not from the, 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 the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. You had to have Levi genes in order to be a priest. 501s. You had to be a Levi, a Levite from the line of Aaron in order to be a priest. And it's, it's fina- fa- fascinating. I won't give you the answers. I don't got time. I got no time to rabbit trail today. But go find out why God chose the tribe of Levi. They, they, he didn't pick them out um, in the beginning. There was the 12 tribes. They were doing life. They were um, entering the promised land. And then God needed a favor, and the tribe of Levi stepped up. And after that point, God told Moses, I want you to anoint that tribe as the priestly tribe moving forward. And, and so Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi, and, he was, and you can't be both priest and king. Now, you could be prophet and king, David was a prophet. He wrote the Psalms. He wrote prophetic Psalms about Jesus and his second coming, his first coming. And David was also king. Jeremiah, in your Bibles, was from the line of Levi, and he was, he was a Levitical priest in his lineage, and he was called to be a prophet. So you could be priest and prophet. You could be king and prophet. For whatever reason, you were not allowed to act as both king and priest. And so Saul, the first king of Israel, was a king, and Samuel, the priest, was supposed to do some ceremonies, and he didn't show up, and Samuel got, or Saul got scared, and he was waited, and it was days, and Samuel didn't show up. So, so Saul acted as priest in Samuel's stead, and he performed the sacrifices, and Samuel showed up, and he said, today God is going to tear the kingdom from you for this. And it was a problem. It was, it was forbidden. So... All right, so we get into this, this solution. So again, the, 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 the spoiler alert really quick, and then we'll go back around, I'll tell you the end and then the beginning. But the, the, the end is that God created a special priesthood under the order of Melchizedek, and so Jesus can not, because here's the problem. Listen, God doesn't give Jesus a pass. Jesus had to complete and fulfill the law of Moses. One of the things that fascinates me about Jesus, that not only was, you know, everything we see in the Gospels, but he lived his entire life without sin and and perfect according to the law of Moses. He had to do that to fulfill it. So he couldn't break the law. He's not allowed to break it. He has to keep it. So God does create for Jesus a wrinkle in the law of Moses doesn't just give him a pass. I'm like, it's okay, it's Jesus. He can, he's the one guy that can be priest and king. He says, no, it, he still has to follow the law of Moses, and he can be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So um, turn to Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 5, 14, 
and we're going to meet Je- uh, this Melchizedek guy for the first time. In Genesis 14, Lot got himself in some trouble. And five kings were at war, and they came, and they took Lot and all of his men captive. And they sent word to Abraham that your nephew Lot is in trouble. And Abraham gathered his fighting men, 600 fighting men that Abraham had. And anybody know that Abraham was a general who had some bad to the bone men around him? We didn't know that about Abraham. But Abraham gathers his men, and they go and they fight against these kings to get Lot, Lot back. And he wins, and he, and he defeats them, and he gets Lot back, and he's returning from the victory of this war where Abraham and his men went down and, and rescued Lot. You can read about it in the Kings in chapter 14. And then when you get to verse 18 of chapter 14, it says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, the God... Of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies in your hands. And Abraham gave him a tithe of all. And Melchizedek received a tithe or a tenth from Abraham. Now he rides on to this story in Genesis 14, a priest who shows up to bless Abraham. Abraham is the father of faith. He's the father of many nations. He's one of the greatest patriarchs that we have biblically in the Bible. And yet this guy Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And, and the biblical patriarchy or the, the Jewish patriarchy, it never changes. The fathers always bless the sons. You don't have a, a grandson who blesses his, his grandfather. It's always in reverse. The hierarchy system is highly honored and revered. And the greater always blesses the lesser. And so Melchizedek, who is greater than Abraham, blesses him. And then when Abraham offers him a tenth or a tithe, then, then Melchizedek receives it. Now, um, when you have an appearance of, say, an angel in the Bible, and this happens many times, and men begin to worship the angels, every time it's an angel and not Jesus, it's one of the ways how you know if it's Jesus or not, is the, the angels say, stop, I'm not God, you're not allowed to worship me. And they, and they refuse to receive the worship of men. Melchizedek doesn't do that in this case. So listen, I'll just tell you again. Melchizedek is either one of two things. This is either a Christophany, which is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus in the Bible, in in physical and spirit where he shows up. Now, that's not an anomaly. It happens um, six times that I'm going to tell you about. If we count this one seven times, where, where unequivocally Jesus shows up in the Old Testament. Now again, contrary to what you might think, Jesus didn't begin as a baby in a manger. He who, he who was rich became poor so that you and I might become rich. He was the God of heaven, the king of the universe. He was there at creation. He has no beginning, no end. Read the, read the description of Jesus. It'll blow your mind in Revelation chapter 1. So, so we see appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. So this Melchizedek is one of two things. He's 100% a type or a shadow of Jesus, whether he is, it is a Christophany or it's a type or a shadow, either way, it's, it's one of those two things. I, I happen to lean a certain way, 
I think I have a minority opinion. I think a lot of the, the scholars and, and people that I studied um, was kind of like, wasn't quite 50-50, more leaned that this is not Jesus himself. I happen to be in the class to believe that this is 100% Uh, an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Now, some you'll be very familiar with. Um, Let's turn with me, if we're doing some Bible um, um, judo today, as I said we would. um, Turn with me, if you will, really quickly to Daniel. And in Daniel, um, one of the cool stories in the Old Testament, in Daniel chapter 8, we all know it, so our favorite Sunday school story, um, is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into a fiery furnace. Sorry, it's not in Daniel 8. It's in Daniel 5. No, it's in Daniel 3. Peanut gallery said 5. That wasn't my fault. Just kidding. In Daniel chapter 3, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were being forced to bow down to um, the God that Nebuchadnezzar erected. And they wouldn't do it. And the king Nebuchadnezzar brought him before them and they said to him, they said, King... We will not bow down to your God, and our God will deliver us. And even if he doesn't, we still won't bow down to your God. And Nebuchadnezzar got so angry, it says that he turned the furnace up seven times hotter. I guess it just added a bunch more wood. And it says the, the soldiers that were carrying Shad, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the door of the fire and threw them in, the fire was so hot it consumed the men that threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire. And then Nebuchadnezzar, and I don't know how they built it, if they had four walls around it or, or how the fire was, but you get this appearance that Nebuchadnezzar can see into the fire. Maybe he's got a, on his balcony or a bird's eye view or somehow he can see... Or maybe there's a way he's just seeing into the fire. But it says this in verse 24 of chapter 3. Then Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose in haste and he spoke saying to his counselors, Did did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to the king, Yes, O king, that's true. And he said, Look. And he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. That's Jesus. That's a Christophany. That's an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. That was Jesus protecting. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And he didn't And He didn't then and he won't now. And he went into the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We see um, many times, other times in the Old Testament, um, I'll give you five more examples of, of places in the Old Testament where we see this. Um, Abraham and Melchizedek being one. Another time Jesus appears to Abraham. Jesus appears to Joseph in the Old Testament. He appears to Joshua in the Old Testament. That's a funny, cool story. Remember that when Jesus shows up, the God of angel armies? And, Abraham, and, and Joshua said to him, are, are you for us or against us? And he said, yes. <laughs> and, then, and then the fiery furnace that I just read, he appears to Samson's mom. And he's, and he's the God who wrestles with Jacob in, 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 in the Old Testament. So we have these clear um, Christophanies in the Old Testament. And then the other thing is that Jesus was fighting with the Pharisees one day, as he often did, in John chapter 8. And they were bragging about being children of Abraham. And, and Jesus said to them, your father Abraham, in chapter 8, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and when he saw it, he was glad. When did Abraham see Jesus? There's no other way, no other time, no other place 
where Abraham would have been able to see Jesus. And Jesus says here in this verse, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and, and, and rejoiced when he saw it. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and when he saw it, he rejoiced. It was glad. And the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, ego ami, I am. And they took up stones to throw at him. But he hid himself and went out. Why did they pick up stones and throw at him? Because unlike the, the, the intellectually dishonest folks today, they clearly understood that Jesus was claiming to be God, to be fully God, to be I am, to be Yahweh. Because in the burning bush that showed up to Moses, that was the great I am. What is your name? I am Yahweh. The, 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 the Tetragrammaton, the YHVH, the all-becoming one. We usually attribute that to the Father. And Jesus in John 8 says, I was there. I am before Abraham was. Ego ami. And they knew exactly what he was saying. You're saying that you're the God that appeared to, a, to Moses in a burning bush? And he said, I am. And they picked up stones because he was claiming to be God. And then let's go back to Hebrews Now, um, usually I warn you guys before I talk about money, but I think I did. I told you guys it was coming. Hey, but we're, gonna, we're just going to talk about this. I'll try to do it briefly, but it's here in the, in the, in the chapter. So again, you know, what I like to do is, is I don't like to skirt anything the Bible teaches. When we come to it, we'll teach it, and, and it's here. And it's talking about tithing, so I want to talk about tithing. Abraham gave a tenth. Now, part of the argument that you'll find among scholars is, um, is the tithe... The 10%, are we required to give 10%? Is God call that out of our lives? And people will argue that, that, the, that the law of tithing is not repeated in the New Testament. And, and so you have a few examples. Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, and he said, You tithe of your mints and your cumins, which you should have done, but you neglect the weightier matters of the, of the, of the law. And just a quick mention to the tithe there, but Jesus doesn't elaborate, so you can't get much out of that. And, and then Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 the New Testament principle of giving. Then we have this, this story of tithing here in Hebrews. So what's not um, mandated in the New Testament is that you give or mandated that you give 10% um, in the New Testament. But the, what, what we have to understand about tithing and giving is that the principle of giving goes from Genesis to Revelation. And the reason, I believe the reason why God didn't mandate the 10% of the New Testament, I, I don't believe that it was because it's not His will that we don't give. And, and 10% is just a good starting point. It's, it's a good um, test of faith, and it's a good springboard for me. We've always used the 10%, Lydia and I have, but listen, I don't legalistically tell anybody that you have to give 10%. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. But, but if you're looking for a place to start, it is biblical. It goes all the way through the tithe, the giving, and, and, and start it. And I heard a pastor say this to his church. He said, you know why God doesn't mandate 10% in the New Testament? Because he wants you to give more. So dig deeper. And he doesn't say 10% because, he, you know, like, I'm not going there. That's not why I think. Here's why I, here's why I don't think it's, it's, it's mandated in the New Testament. I think because it would give churches and it would give power um, of, for men to lord it over the laity's life. 
And if it was required of you to give 10%, it would almost take away the New Testament principle of giving. And the Bible says the New Testament principle of giving is that you can't give begrudgingly and that, and that you can't give out of obligation. So if you don't understand tithing and you're having to give and you give it and you just give it because you think you have to or you begrudge it or you, you're mad about it later, listen, don't give it because God's not going to give it back to you. He's not going to bless it. He's blessing a heart that gives in faith. And you have to come to that point. I tell you, don't give up on the subject because it says in, in Corinthians that giving is for your advantage. I have no problem telling you to give to the ministry, to give to the Lord, to invest in God's kingdom because it is to your advantage. And then, and then God, Paul is, uses a very simple illustration in Corinthians that, that, I mean, if any of you guys can do math, if you can't do math, get out your iPhone. They got a calculator on it. It'll help you. My wife always tell, I always tell my wife all the time, oh, I got faith, I got faith. And she's like, no, you don't have faith. You just don't do math. I'm like, that's true. I just call it faith. But the, the math is simple in, in the New Testament. It says if you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you're going to reap bountifully. And, and, and that's, that's really simple. God promises that over your life. In Malachi, everybody goes to Malachi, and, and you know, we, we talk about that scripture. There's a scripture in Malachi, Malachi when it comes to giving, nobody even looks at. But it, it, I t to me, it brings more of the emphasis. The one in Malachi is, will a man rob God? But in, in chapter 3, before that, he's talking to the tribe of Judah, and he's encouraging them in verse the end of verse 3, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. And it's a heart matter. And he says, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord. And so the idea is that it's to be pleasing to the Lord. And then again in 2 Corinthians, we, we have, you know, and again, you guys can do your own homework. 2 Corinthians uh, 9 and 10 is, is the full-on manual for giving in the New Testament. It says this, and in this I give advice. It is to your advantage. Everybody say, to your advantage. Not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago. And then he says, be ready as a matter of generosity and not grudging obligation. God's not going to receive your begrudging obligation. And we don't encourage anybody, you know, in our ministry here to, to, to give out of any kind of obligation or begrudgingness. And he says, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not 